So I want to give you a little bit of an etymology, a little bit of the history behind this brief series we're going to do. Uh, I've been reading a lot uh, about, well, I've been thinking, reading a lot about the idea of time. You know, there was a time when people were intimately connected to the movement, the passage of time, the changing of the seasons. They would, um, winter meant, and I, uh, as you know, many of you, I lived in Russia for a couple of years. And one of the things that would happen in January and February is you'd go to buy potatoes, and they would be much smaller and much harder, and they were what was called winter potatoes, winter cabbage. We ate a lot more pickled fruit that had been prepared in the summer before. And then there was a time when the watermelon trucks would roll into town in May, and they'd be, oh, I know, Winnie, watermelon is the best. They would roll in big green, sweet fruits, and it meant that the summer fruits were in season, that there was a connection to food in season. Um, they would, this time of year, they would, people would sleep more because when the sun went down, you went to bed. When the sun came up, you woke up. Anybody live in like a, a or, or remember a time when sundown meant bedtime and then the sun would rise? One of, the, one of the things that, that I am struck by uh, in the writing of Dallas Willard is he writes about the time when, he, when electricity came to his farm. And he remembers now, there's electricity. We can have lights on. That there was a deep connection. And there, through all of human history, there's always been a deep connection to time, to seasons, to preparing for spring and the rains and planting, to waiting and biding time until, the, the, until harvest came in, in the fall, and then preparing food to get you through winter, hoping it was enough, a connection to season, um, dancing when the, when the spring rains fell, um, thinking like this is in the summer, this is going to be a good year, we're getting good rain, the crops are abundant, the, the harvest to year after year. Now, we live in an age of electric lights, well, for some of us, our house, our, our electricity is out right now, which is reminding us how dependent we are on electricity to get through a day. Uh, now, you can have any food at any time. If you've got a kid that has a February birthday and they want strawberry shortcake, guess what you can find in February? You pay. They're not as good. But you can get strawberries anytime you want, tomatoes anytime. We're disconnected from time. If you have a garden, it's a... It's a hobby. It's not what you're dependent on survival for. That, the, the, that much of life, it seems to us, day after day, one day bleeds into the next because time is flat. We're in control of time. We're not connected to the rhythms of time, to the seasons of time. That, that the lower, like this is the one of two days a year where our sleep is impacted by seasons. And it's because it's daylight savings time. So we set our clocks and change our clocks differently. We live in an age disconnected from time, except for right now. November and December are different. from the rest of the year. This is the only time we truly mark as significant, special time of being with family, feasting. We all now you don't hold a meeting in December. You don't have a, a, just a gathering in December unless it's explicitly a Christmas gathering. And Mar Mariah Carey is there 
waiting. Ooh, all I want for Christmas is you. Baby. So it's a time of year where the, the, the rhythms are disrupted, where we are more mindful of time, of a season. In fact, when we say, I love the holiday season, in most cultures, you're like, which holiday season? In the short series looking through the Jewish calendar, there's seven different holidays that they celebrate that mark the passage of time, that mark the year. When we say I love the holidays, we're talking about this time, this season. So, for November, we're going to look at three of the, of the seven major feasts of the Jewish calendar. Uh, a time of gathering, feasting, um, thankfulness, gratitude, anticipation. You know, you've got Passover, which is an anticipation of a harvest, anticipation of, of God's rescue and deliverance. Um, you've got first fruits, times when you are thankful for the beginning of the harvest, and you bring your first fruits to God as a sacrifice, as a way of saying thank you to God, because you're aware, as a person who lives bound by time, of your dependence on things like rain. For us, we've got sprinklers. Uh, for the rest of human history, there's been rain that either fell or did not fall, or very uh, rude, rudimentary irrigation. So, what you have on your chair is a journal. This is a gift to you, and this is a gratitude journal. So, there is such a thing as a science of happiness, which of all the sciences, that's the one I want to fund, you know? It's the science of, of happiness, of joy, uh, of contentment. And what studies have shown, and when these start with, instead of what bad things make people unhappy, the question is what, what makes people who are genuinely content with their life, what habits can we learn from them, and maybe reverse engineer it to find ourselves happy and content because of certain habits that we've implemented. The one that all the research points to as helpful in instilling joy and happiness is a gratitude journal. So this, for the month of November, our challenge is to write every single day a couple things that you're grateful for. And what studies have shown is that when people focus on things they're happy and grateful for, they have more resiliency, there's more, they're more joyful, their mental health improves, they sleep better. There's all these ways of, and I'm not going to get into the causation versus correlation debate on this one, I'm just going to say that a healthy habit of happy people is journaling gratitude. So for this month, we're, our challenge is to emphasize and focus on what we're grateful for. For what you're ungrateful for, you don't need a journal for. They, you will be very mindful of those things. What we need to remember is the things that we're, that we're glad, happy, joyful for. So take this. It's a gift. If you have members of your family uh, who aren't here, um, I have, um, I think, I've got two 10-year-olds and somebody who turned eight today. Um, and uh, that's Winnie. Yeah, she's eight today. Happy birthday. She's, she's also going to take one home and, and do her own gratitude journal. This is, this is something, I think, so feel free to, to take a couple if you have some household members that aren't here today. The first Festival we're going to talk about is Purim. So I'm going to read the command to remember in Esther chapter 9, Purim. And then uh, I'll tell the story of Esther and what's being celebrated. And then I'll just ask the question, what does it look like when a community is shaped around this story? When every year people pause to retell the story of Esther. What, what are the effects of a community that's centered on um, that? So Esther 9, this is, the, this is at the end of the book of Esther. 
uh, and this is the command to make this a feast. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. It's called Purim. It's named after Pur, that is the lot. And if you don't know what a lot is, that's fine. A lot is essentially a dice. So at the center, the name of this festival is about chance and luck, in a, in a sense. Um, but when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days are called Purim, from the word pur, which means lots. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all those join them without fail to observe these two days every year in the way prescribed at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So of the seven feasts that mark the Jewish year, Purim is... You celebrate Purim uh, as a community. First, what you do is you exchange food with your neighbors. So if you have a special dish that you prepare or some, some kind of something pickled or something fresh, whatever it is, you go to your neighbor and you, ex you exchange food with one another. Second is you're mindful, well, not everyone has food to exchange. So the second way you celebrate Purim is you share with those in need, with the poor, with those who don't have food to exchange, as a way of saying, we take care of each other, we look after each other, especially in the backdrop of what happens in the book of Esther, that as a people, we care for each other, we're connected to each other. To those who have means, we exchange food, to those who have not, we give food as a gift. Then, at the end, the second day of the festival, there is a feast. And I have friends who have been to Purim feasts, and they say it is not only good food, but it is an ample amount of wine. So people are cheer, um, less, in, in fewer innovation. In, they're, they're freer, is what I'm trying to say. And then the fourth and the final tradition of the month of Purim, or of the festival of Purim, is you tell the story of Esther. You read all ten chapters of the book of Esther together as a community that has just shared food, cared for the poor, feasted, and now hear the story. And because people are in good spirits, that um, they, when they gather together, they, it reads like a melodrama. When our heroes, Esther and Mordecai, are mentioned, the crowd cheers, yeah, yeah, go Esther, Mordecai. And when Haman is mentioned, people boo, they hiss, they spit on the ground, um, and... As the story moves towards its conclusion, uh, Esther is much like a Marvel movie where it just, or an action, any kind of action genre of them all, there's like a, there, there really isn't any romance in the book of Esther, uh, uh, like at all. But there is uh, bad people 
good people, a plot for evil people to destroy good people, a trap that springs and catches the leg of those who set the trap, rather than those who have, um, the, who are supposed to be, who are the objects of the trap. So I don't have to, I don't have to read, I don't have time to read the whole book, so I'm just going to tell you the story of Esther. So it goes like this. It's the, it's the time of, of exile. God's people are occupied, and the ruler of now that they are governed by is a guy named King Xerxes. And the first thing we know about King Xerxes is he decrees 180 days of partying. That just as a way of celebrating his wealth, his great governance as the king, he decrees for 180 days there shall be a celebration of, honestly, if we're just going to get down to it, me as your king. And that we've provided, we've conquered, we've expanded, we've got all this wealth, let's celebrate. So um, if you ask yourself, what kind of person in his third year throws a party for himself to celebrate his greatness for, for, for half a year? Xerxes is the kind that does that. And so that kind of winds down. It, it, takes, it turns out it takes a lot of people to make 180 days of party continue and, and go on. And so on the last week, so days 181 to 187, he takes all those who helped from the least to the greatest and says, come to my garden, drink from, green, from, from golden goblets. He tells the steward of the party, do not deny anybody alcohol. If they are too drunk to walk to you to get more wine, bring it to them. This is going to be seven days of, of partying. So that's, that's what happens in the first chapter of Esther. King Xerxes, conqueror of God's people, occupier of the land, comes and throws a 108 party, culminates in the seven. And so on the seventh day, he is, I mean, 187 days is a long time to celebrate yourself. But he says on the last day, kind of at the peak of the party, he's like, you know what? I think people need to know how beautiful my wife is. She is like a stone-cold fox, the hottest woman in the kingdom. That's why she's my queen. So I'm going to bring Queen Vashti out here just to kind of parade her around, to show her what a beautiful person she is. And so Queen Vashti hears, you know, the king wants to talk to you. The king wants you to come out to the party. And she is like, I don't, I don't know what 187 days of partying does to a relationship or to a, to a, a marriage. Uh, it's, it puts some strains on it, I would imagine. And she's like, human as drunken friends have been partying for 187 days. And they want me to come out to kind of show me off, show off my... Be- I, I don't want to be part of that. Like, this is, this is what I signed up for as queen. So she says to him, no. Now, king doesn't like hearing the word no. As anybody who parties for 187 days, one thing you know about that person, they don't understand the word no. So he brings and gathers his consultants and like any consultant of a king like Xerxes, they're basically reading him from like, what is he looking for from me right now? What does he want to hear? And it's like, my queen, she doesn't come out. She defied an order. Uh, what should I do? This is like, there's a de- the, like deaths on the table here. And they say, you know what, king? Xerxes, look, this is bigger than saying no to, to the king. This is a woman who defied a man. And, and I'm going to quote here just so I don't get into trouble. This is, this is, this is what uh, they say. If she resists the king's clear command then there is no stopping women from all over the kingdom from refusing their husbands. There will be no end to disrespect. So show her who's boss. Show her that she's replaceable, lest the women get some ideas in their head. 
about us men folk. And so he says, well, standing up for men, uh, you know, I need, to, I need to do that. I need to advocate for the men folk or otherwise it's going to be chaos in the kingdom. So he essentially, he banishes Vashti from the kingdom and you can no longer come into my presence, which I'm sure she was super bummed about. Oh, no, I can't come into the king's chambers anymore. And so uh, he sobers up the, you know, has some fog memories. And he's like, where is Queen Vashti? Oh, shoot, I banished her. Oh, now what do I do? And so, they, again, the consultants come and, and say, we, we need to have essentially uh, a series of pageants to find you a new queen. And he says, oh, so we'll mark uh, women of intelligence that consult me. And they're like, yeah, we were just thinking like a beauty pageant, you know? Just uh, no less talking, more just like, you know. So that's what happens is... Uh, <laughs> a beauty pageant, and enter Mordecai and Esther. So Mordecai, yeah, cheers. Mordecai and Esther. So Mordecai and Esther are cousins. Uh, Mordecai is much older. And all we know is that Esther had no other family to look after her. So Mordecai, as, as kin, as a time of upheaval, um, it's not a leap to say in the transition of power as Xerxes, uh, as they came, troops came in, conquered that, um, somehow Esther's parents were lost in that. Um, Mordecai lost his family, and together they, they make a family. And, and so this is, and this is the most important thing, I think, to understand how, how, how difficult this story can be, is this is ultimately a story of survival. And what Mordecai says to Esther is, they're having a beauty contest. It's, it's recorded in Scripture that you're beautiful. That's the word of the Lord, literally, to, to that she's a striking woman. So why don't you enter into this and ensure this, your survival and the survival of, the, of your people through being close to the king. And so sure enough, she wins. Um, congratulations, Esther. <laughs> you get to marry King Xerxes. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, already uh, kind of a Cinderella story uh, if Prince Charming was kind of a monster. And so Esther uh, is, is betrothed, enters into a 12-month preparation. Uh, I elected not to figure out what she do for 12 months to prepare to be married for the king. Uh, just, I'm just going to move on with the story. So they're married. And uh, as she gets close to the king, close to power, so does Mordecai. He's um, so close to power, in fact, that he is near a gate and overhears a conversation between two soldiers that basically are plotting to overthrow Xerxes. Um, let's, let's kill him. And I don't know why you'd want to kill a king that gave 180 parties unless you had to you know, deal with the drunken people. Um, I don't know. But they plan to overthrow him. And Mordecai hears about it, tells Esther about the plot, says, be sure and warn King Xerxes that there's a plot afoot. So she does. He does an investigation, finds out to be true, disposes of those soldiers, and then asks Esther, who was it that you said that told, me, told you about this? Oh, my, my uh, relative, Mordecai. So what... Xerxes does, literally, is writes down his name. Uh, Mordecai did me a solid, you know, or whatever the uh, you know, Assyrian equivalent of that is. Uh, and then the story moves forward. He forgets about it. I think he, I think he did a lot of drinking. So the, as um, enter now somebody in the king's court who is ambitious, he is rising up in power, up the rankings, and his name is Haman. Yeah. 
Haman. Um, and he is hungry and wants exactly one thing. He wants power. And what is power if people don't acknowledge it and bow before it? So he puts into an, an, an edict just to make sure his ego remains intact, that when he comes through town, people kneel, look down, just as a, a sign of saying, Haman is, is, uh, is the man. He's, uh, he deserves power. And, and as he's walking by, he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai is the one person who does not bow down, who has this, this look of deep resolve, defiance, that he does not kneel before Haman. Haman loses his mind. And he goes to his consultants, who also are just telling him what he wants to hear. He says, who is this dude? What's, what's his deal? And I go, that's Mordecai. And he's like, well, I'm going to put a stake in my front yard for him to be impaled on. And his consultants are like, dude, that's a great idea. And then he says, but even that won't satisfy me. I, I, who are his people? And they say, well, he's Jewish. And then Haman says that we must not destroy Mordecai alone. We must destroy all his people. Let's begin a program of gathering up all the Jewish people together, and let's set a date for them all to be exterminated. Um, as they say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes an awful lot. A plot to kill the Jewish people. So, that, as that plot is stewing, uh, Xerxes can't sleep one night, and he's reading his history. <laughs> I guess it's like reading his biography. He's the man who's... This story is populated, unfortunately, with men with egos, if you can imagine men with egos like that in power. And so he is, he's reading through it, and he comes, to the, he comes and stumbles upon the roads. Mordecai did me a solid. He's like, I don't think I properly thanked him. And so he gets Haman and tells Haman, you know what, pick one of the finest horses out. That's somebody I want to honor. Pick one out. And he's like, well, it's clearly going to be me. It's clearly me the king wants to honor. And then the king says to him, Give that to Mordecai. And Haman, like his head almost explodes. He does it. Here you go, buddy. Hope you enjoyed this horse. Uh, and then doubles down his plot. So um, everything reaches the climax in the book when uh, Haman is planning to kill all the Jewish people as Mordecai and Esther are trying to save the people. And, and Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, you need to go before the king. To which Esther says, but if I go before the king, you know, you saw what happened to Queen Vashti. She was, she was banned and exiled for defying the king. To stand and seek and initiate the king's, in the king's presence is to defy the king and to say, I have something so important to you that you didn't think of it yourself. And, and what Mordecai says is, if, if, if you don't intervene now, all God's people are at risk of being destroyed. So she goes in the climactic moment of the story stands in the king's presence, waits to see if the tip of his scepter um, grants her banishment or uh, a, a presence. He, she, he welcomes her in. She identifies herself as Jewish. She intervenes to save the people. And all the traps, Haman, the, the stake he put out for Mordecai, he's impaled on. Those who conspire to kill the Jewish people are killed themselves. And all the traps that were set for God's people spring and capture all the enemies of Israel. And people at the end of the telling of the story, where it comes to the words we just heard of remembering this story, cheer, toast one another, and, and celebrate God's sovereignty and, and faithfulness throughout the story. Um, so let me see where I am in my notes now. Kind of got carried away there. Um, so yeah, happy ending, cheer, good. 
So, I said, it's a strange book. One of the, one of the, one of the, the, the number one reasons it's strange is God is never mentioned and his presence is never even inferred in the book of Esther. That it is um, a lot like, like, like life, actually. You look for God behind the scenes, you look for God in back, but when it comes to this awareness of God's presence in the book of Esther, it's, it's, not, it's not to be found in there. In fact, Esther is the only book of the Bible not to mention God. Um, you know, Daniel lived through similar circumstances, and if you see and you read the book of Daniel, the crisis at the beginning is how do we remain faithful in Babylon? My people were just conquered, killed, they destroyed the temple, they carried away all the, the gold in there, the sacred instruments that were used for worship of Yahweh are now being melted down and, and used to, to serve the gods of Babylon. How do I remain faithful? And what, what does Daniel do? He tells his people, I will, I'm going to eat kosher, but test me. See if I can outperform all those who are eating at the king's table meat. And so at the center of it, how do I remain publicly faithful to the living God of Israel? In Esther, Mordecai tells her, do not let the king know that you're Jewish. And Esther, you know, probably is like, well, what do you, how do you hide that from him? He's going to ask. And um, I think Mordecai is like, yeah, Xerxes doesn't strike me as a particularly curious person. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he's aware that you have an inner life or a history. Uh, I think he just thinks you're beautiful. And sure enough, he's, she's able to hide it uh, from him. Um, and it, it's so difficult. Grouchy, old reformer Martin Luther, 500 and something years ago, this was Reformation Day this week, 500 and, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, uh, Luther changed our history. This is what he said about the book of Esther. I am so great an enemy to the book of Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. That hasn't aged well, Luther. Um, so he saw in there what he thought of was largely pagan. Uh, even the, the, the idea of Purim comes from the idea of chance, of luck, uh, of things going your way. So what are we to make of this story? How are we? Are we is it... Um, you know, are we to trust God in faithfulness like Daniel or to be like Esther and hide our faithfulness? What's the, and I think, you know, both are, both stories are stories of boldness. Uh, uh, a man navigating through the world is very different than a woman navigating through this world. And I think part of the power of this story is Esther, the woman rescuing God's people. That her being the person who in the moment, in a time such as this, stood boldly in front of the king, risked her life, and saved her, pe her people. There's a, um, you know, you can see Christ in Esther. You can see what the work that God did through Jesus, very similar to the work God did through, through Esther. So, survival has its own logic. These are stories of survival. What I want to do in conclusion, instead of giving you three application points to help you strengthen relationships, um, as <laughs> as that is, I, I want to instead ask the question, what is it like for a community every year to gather around this story? What is it like for God's people year after year to tell a story where God is not explicitly mentioned, where Moses and his law, the temple, none of it's explicitly mentioned, which is always going to resonate with the people who are, spend so much of their time in exile and without a temple to access? 
to hear a story of God faithfully preserving them through what appears like chance. It's, it's interesting, this isn't the Feast of Esther or the Feast of Mordecai. This is the Feast of Purim. This is the Feast of Dice. I mean, the Purim is, are, are lots. Lots are like these sticks that you throw down on the ground either to make a decision for you uh, or to trust the gods to, as you throw down your lot to trust the gods to reveal to you what you needed to know to go through the next phase of life. It's, it's a way of discerning when you can't hear directly from God. It's, I think it's why Esther resonates so deeply with us is because so much of God's activity is off page, off script, behind the scenes, and only visible when you look back to certain moments where you think Mordecai was spared because the king woke up and remembered, couldn't sleep, read a journal, remembered Mordecai, and he was saved. That, that Esther was born for a time such as this to stand before the king and advocate for his people. You know, as I was reading about this story, it's you, you, one of the things that emerged was in concentration camps in Germany, in Poland, and, um, rabbis would write down from memory as much as they could remember about the book of Esther. And then in the darkness of the, of the cells in concentration camps would hold a Purim feast ad hoc, reading as much as he could remember from the story of Esther against the backdrop of yet another group seeking to exterminate God's people from the face of the earth. There's something about story that bonds people, that unites them, that gives them a common narrative. And in good times and dark times, whatever season of life, people gathering every year to read the story of Esther and finding that this story resonates differently across time as, as those listening inhabit different stories and parts of, of history. Stories resonate whenever people are trying to see in the darkness. The big darkness, like gathering together to have Purim in a, in a concentration camp, to a small darkness where just the everyday normal despair we experience of feeling like, I don't see God around me. I, I feel um, that, that, that I've been forgotten. Um, that to remember that evil people bent on destroying people eventually will step into their own traps. Uh, and people who believe deep in their bones, hopefully people like us, that life is ultimately not about power. It's not about getting close to power. Um, it's about faithfulness. Um, as people gather to feast, to share what they have, grounding themselves in a particular time, grounding themselves in an ongoing story, that to hear the story of God in what seems like a dark place, rescuing, redeeming, and furthering his, his plans and purposes. And finally, how did Jesus celebrate Purim? It's a good question. Tip of the hat for asking it. Uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus goes to a, a, an unnamed uh, festival that scholars kind of link between the timeline of Jesus' life and say he was probably in town for Purim. And what he does in, in John 5 is in the middle of, of the feasting and the festival, he goes and he walks to a pool in Bethesda. He finds a man who has been paralyzed and unable to walk for 38 years who's been really unlucky. Every time the angel stirs the water and heals people, which is probably a folktale that, that some people believed, every time it comes, I'm the last one in. I'm too late. 
I can never catch a break. I am always out of luck. And Jesus, on Sabbath, heals him. Which probably infuriated old Martin Luther, who thought he comes in to the waters are stirred, he believes this pagan thing, but it turns out the story makes sense because Jesus is there. Jesus is bringing healing. And on Purim, he's reminding people there's no chance. There's only God, his plans, and his purpose, and God working together with those who are faithful to him, his plans and purpose. Um, he brought hope and healing, just as God did for Esther. So let's come to the table this morning. Come and find light at the table. For God who rescued his people from Haman, is the God who hears your prayers and sent us Jesus. And as you return to your seats, whatever your season you're in, for Purim comes when times are good and it comes when times are bad. Whatever season you're in, may you know like God in your life. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we remember your faithfulness to Esther, um, to your people, uh, and trust and know that the same God who rescued his people uh, from, a, uh, from Haman's plot is the one who sees us in our distress and as we cry out to you. And may we learn and know that life isn't just about chance, but trusting you with all that we are. May we have the courage and faith to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.